Hi, I'm Wilson King, and this is the ADD history of a bunch of weird legends that people supposedly used to believe. Episode 2.1 The Old Stories Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. I gotta stop it there, or we're watching the whole series. Galadriel is right, though. There is much that we have forgotten. At the end of the last season, I described the story of the end of the Ice Age, one that seems to have made it into a lot of ancient mythology as a great flood. The end of the Younger Dryas period, the end of the end of the Ice Age, was about 11,500 years ago. From there, I struggled to figure out where I'm going to start the story of humanity back up. Here's the problem. We have no idea what was happening before about 6,000 years ago. Well, we have some vague ideas, which is what that whole first season was about. Earth was covered in bacteria, then dinosaurs, and woolly mammoths, then humans became a thing. Those humans might have created a great civilization or many, but if they did, it was wiped out at the end of the Ice Age, and we remember nothing more than legends and ruins. But we don't know what happened in the thousands of years between. Maybe Atlantis and the other great civilizations of the forgotten past existed, but what follows was literally a Dark Age. Gobleki Tepe, a vast complex megalithic monument in modern Turkey, was built almost exactly at the end of the Ice Age, and it really seems to go out of its way to tell us that date as well. I explained that in some detail in episode 5 on the megalithic age. Someone built that, which was no easy feat. Then someone buried it around a thousand years later. That's 10,000 years ago. Then it's thousands of years of static. Essentially, the next vague idea of anything happening is 6,000 years ago. At that point, we are kind of aware of some civilizations like the Babylonians and Sumerians starting agriculture and forming cities. We have an idea of the territory of these cultures, but not a ton to go on as far as what was actually going on then. 4,000 years ago, we finally kinda know what's going on. Egypt is kind of a big deal at the time. There's a lot going on in the Fertile Crescent, from Turkey to the Persian Gulf. There are Greek city-states dotting the coastlines and islands of, well, Greece. Everything to the north and west of Greece is a backwater, full of grimy barbarians that aren't writing anything down. Those are my ancestors so I'm allowed to say it like it is. I don't think they had invented sauerkraut yet, so they don't matter. At this point, I'm going to be focused on the Eastern Mediterranean, where everything was going on in the Western world. I know there was stuff going on in Eastern Asia as well, and I really look forward to learning more about it because the little I know is very fascinating. However, to maintain continuity, I'm catching up the story of the East once I reach 1200 AD in our storyline, because that's when they actually come in contact with the Western side of the continent. That had something to do with a notably smelly horse archer taking over most of Asia, but we're not going to hit that story for quite a while. What we do have on that 5,000 years of question marks is a bunch of really nutty legends. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Babylonians, they all got some stories, and it's not the kind of stories that come off as obviously true. These are stories about great heroes that were fathered by gods who dismember seven-headed dinosaurs. So to fill in this gap, introduce some of our civilizations, and get a laugh about some of these wild tales, welcome to the ADD history of mythology of the Bronze Age. Buckle in, my friends. So, here's how the Egyptians say the universe began. 
There's a lot of different versions of this story, but this is the basics. In the beginning, there was darkness and swirling chaos. Pretty common theme. Basically, every creation myth starts out with that statement, and I'm going to go ahead and say they probably nailed it on that one. Even in our scientific creation myth, so to speak, the time before the Big Bang was pretty much darkness and swirling chaos. In this darkness and chaos was a lot of water, which is also a pretty common theme. There was a primordial god in all of this water, Heka, the god of magic, sitting around waiting for something to happen. That guy's just kind of around, he doesn't actually do anything. I'm not even sure I should bring him up, because he's so irrelevant that his existence was only realized like 40 years ago. But he's here now, and there's always a primordial god in the water before the universe begins. That's also a theme in these creation stories. There's generally a primordial god in the water. Regardless of the irrelevant primordial god of magic, eventually a hill rose out of the formless chaos with a god called Atum, or Ra, standing atop it. Pretty epic. Ra is the sun god, by the way, kind of the king of the universe above all others. Atum, slash Ra, was understandably dissatisfied about being alone in infinite nothingness, so he had sex with his own shadow to produce Shu, the god of the air, who he apparently sneezed out? Shu's name sounds like a sneeze. I wonder if that was intentional. Next was Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, who Ra threw up. Shu created the chaos of life, and Tefnut created order. Also a pretty big theme. These two gods left their dad on the hill and went out to create the world. Ra started to worry about what was taking so long, so he took out his eye and sent it to go search for them. Oddly, that's a very common motif in mythology. A lot of convenient eye removal. Ra sat around on his hill, pondering the universe, and waited for his children and his eye to return. When Ra's two kids and his eye all returned together, he cried tears of joy, and those tears became men and women when they hit the ground. Since Shu and Tefnut hadn't actually created the world in all of their traveling, the two siblings went about it the old-fashioned way and had sex to give birth to the earth and sky. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of mythology in the next couple episodes, and there's a lot of really odd stories about gods and humans sleeping with their siblings. Just get used to hearing about a lot of casual mythological incest for a while. After reading this stuff and the biblical stories for a little bit, I don't even notice it anymore. Anyway, the earth and sky, who were people in some way, took after their parents and fell in love, refusing to leave each other's side. Ra didn't like it, though, so he separated the earth and sky to where you might expect them to be. They were forced to be able to see their love all the time, but never touch again. Sad. The earth had already knocked up his sister the sky, though, and she gave birth to Osiris, Isis, Set, and two other gods that will just make this way more confusing. In all of these stories, the earth and sky have children, then are separated for one reason or another. In a way, it almost seems like a mythologized interpretation of Earth's formation, then its later separation from space by an atmosphere and an ionosphere. Maybe I'm reading into that too deep, but, eh, you know, it's food for thought. Anyway, Rob buggered off elsewhere, presumably to go be the star that we orbit, leaving the kingdom of Egypt to his great-grandchildren. Osiris becomes the ruler of Earth alongside his sister-wife Isis, while their evil brother Set hung around being angry. This is also a pretty common trope. Not that dissimilar from the story of Cain and Abel. Anyway, Osiris created the perfect place, which was, naturally, Egypt, with the perfect river, the Nile, who his wife ruled. All that Osiris and Isis did were in perfect harmony and balance. That's a whole thing with these guys. To introduce Set, he's depicted with the head of just about any kind of animal that isn't human, kind of like an evil, undefined canine most of the time. I think he kind of looks like an anteater, personally. The tricky bad brother of the gods generally has the ability to shapeshift, another similarity between Set and Loki from Nordic mythology. 
and, you know, a bunch of other gods, but you know, not going to go through all of them. Set, or Seth, was the god of the desert, storms, bad things in general, and foreigners. I find that pretty funny. Set is the god of everything bad or threatening, and foreigners. Sounds like the ancient Egyptians weren't split on the issue of immigration. Interestingly, the main god of the Canaanites, Baal, who I will talk about later, was considered to be the same being as Set, literally the top god of their nearest foreign culture. Baal also seems to be pretty much the same nasty character. In yet another common trope, this jealous brother Set murdered Osiris for being so much cooler than he was. Set made a coffin, essentially, that was exactly the right size for Osiris to fit into. He then threw a party and promised to give the coffin to whoever fit into it perfectly at the end. It's a strange party favor, but Osiris and the other 72 partygoers apparently wanted it. Osiris fit in perfectly, then Set closed it tightly and threw the party coffin in the river. The Nile, naturally. It's the only river that ever comes up in Egyptian mythology, shockingly. Set, naturally, assumed control over the world and told everybody his benevolent brother was dead. He is the stereotypical evil prince of all that is not good, and I'm sure he acted like it. Set ruled as a tyrant and brought a cloud of darkness over Egypt. Real Sauron vibes going on. Isis didn't believe her husband was dead, though, so she eventually found the coffin in a tree, for some reason, and left the body in the care of her sister, whose name I won't trouble you with. By the way, this sister is Set's wife. She's not really a main character, and I don't feel like trying to pronounce her name. Nephithis? Nepethys? I'm gonna call her sister hard to pronounce for the crime of having seven continents in a row. It's my show. I think it is Nephithys, so... Nephithys. Yeah. Yeah, that. Isis gathered herbs and such to bring Osiris back to life, and Set knew Isis would try to do just that. He asked Sister Hard to Pronounce about where Isis was, could tell she was lying about something, and extracted the location of Osiris's body from her. He then went to the body and tore it into 42 pieces, spreading them all across Egypt. That's where the 42 provinces of Egypt come from. How convenient. When Isis had prepared all of her potions to return Osiris from the dead, she returned to the body, found it was gone, and collapsed in tears. Sister Hard to Pronounce felt guilty, and together they searched across Egypt for the pieces of Osiris. There are several versions of how this next part goes down, but this is definitely my favorite because it's so charmingly weird. They did find all of the pieces of Osiris, and built a shrine wherever they did, but they didn't find Osiris's penis. That got eaten by a fish. Of all the body parts, man, bad luck. Isis, being a goddess, wasn't stopped by this and made a new penis for him, which presumably could vibrate this time, and impregnated herself with it, giving birth to Horus. He's the bird guy. Okay, he's one of the bird guys, like his grandpa, Ra. Technically, he's a falcon man. Anyway, Osiris was brought back from the dead, but was incomplete in a very unfortunate way, so he went to go rule over the underworld, to fairly judge and rule over the dead. What else is a guy in his situation to do, right? Poor bastard. Symbolically, I assume maybe he rules over the dead because he can no longer create life. Just a thought. That kind of fits the whole motif that all of these things always have. Horus was raised in secret, growing up on the swampy Nile River Delta, while the Dark Riders of Set searched Egypt for him. Okay, they weren't literally Nazgul from Lord of the Rings, but pretty much close enough, honestly. Gandalf, I mean Isis, placed powerful spells on her baby falcon boy to conceal his location. Horus then grew up to be a wise and capable bird person. Once he was old enough, he challenged his evil uncle Set for the throne of Egypt. The Council of Gods debated this whole thing for a while. 
Set argued that Horus was a falcon, which is related to a raven, and ravens are evil in Egyptian lore, so that simply wouldn't do. The gods generally decided that Horus the falcon man probably was the rightful king, but they came to the conclusion that Set and Horus should do a series of summer camp-style competitions to see who should rule. These are great, but very convoluted, so I can't explain all of them, or if they're in the right order, because nobody actually seems to know. I'm just going to make up the order, just like everybody else seems to. The first trial was proposed by Set. They would jump into the Nile together and see who could hold their breath longer. Since Set also happened to be the god of hippos, he turned into a hippo, an obvious advantage over the Birdman. Isis comes to her son's aid, though, and spears Hippo Set, forcing the trial to a draw. Set was furious, so he gouged out Horus's eyes, but Isis healed them with milk. Alrighty then. There's a couple versions of that, though, and the eye of Horus is a symbol that pretty much anybody would recognize even today. There's all sorts of stories of Set ripping out Horus's eye, or both eyes, and sometimes cutting one of them into six pieces. In that case, Horus could only find five pieces and replace the last one with some kind of god magic that allowed him to see everything. Why not just make the entire eye out of god magic? I couldn't tell you. Later, he gives this eye to his father Osiris, who eats it, and it's part of what restores him to full god status and allows him to see all that happens from his throne in the underworld. Something like that, anyway. This is all extremely convoluted. Not too different from Odin in Nordic mythology, by the way. There's a bunch of father-son symbolism in there about the wisdom of experience and a young man's ability to see the world as it currently is, but I'm not going to get sidetracked down that rabbit hole. Back to the fight between Horus and Set. Next is a good one. It's convoluted, of course, but the gods threw a party, which in some versions appears to be for Horus's victory over Set, though it's kind of in the middle of the story, so that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It was a banger of a party, though, so some of the gods had to share tents, including Set and Horus, awkwardly. Set decided to assert his dominance by, uh, ejaculating on Horus. Horus perceived what Set was up to, though, because he's a falcon guy, and he can see everything. Even, I'm not even gonna, you know, worry about that. I'm not gonna be graphic about it, but I'd assume it would be pretty hard to sleep through a god doing that right next to you in a quiet tent. Horus caught the semen in his hand, though, and didn't let it touch his body, then threw it in the river. The Nile, of course. When he explained what had happened to his mother Isis, she cut off his hand and threw it in the river as well. Presumably his hand grew back, because dismemberment doesn't seem to be a very big deal for all of these gods. They then asked the gardener of the gods what was Set's favorite food, which turned out to be lettuce, and Horus covered it in his own semen. You just can't make this stuff up. Well, the Egyptians could. I guess, unless this somehow really happened, but I certainly couldn't. Anyway, Set voraciously devoured the unusually salty lettuce. Later, he stood in front of all of the gods and made an announcement. He proclaimed, I have done the male's work upon Horus, which obviously means I am the rightful king. I'd argue that the location of ejaculate is no basis upon which to found a government, unless Bill Clinton or Jeffrey Epstein are involved but this appears to be a perfectly reasonable concept to the Egyptian gods. Set called out to his semen, which apparently had tracking abilities, but his load responded faintly from the Nile River. Then Isis called Horus's semen, and it responded from the forehead of Set. Why the forehead and not his stomach? I couldn't tell you, and I don't want to know. Set was presumably humiliated. Having been played at his own weird sexual game, and all of the gods giggled and tallied this as a win for Horus. Yep, moving on. 
I guess they still didn't have enough evidence that Horus was the rightful king, though. So they decided that the two gods would conclude the struggle for the throne of Egypt with a boat race. It was decided that they would race canoes made out of stone. In an uncharacteristic bit of cheating from Horus, who was probably a bit fed up with all of this, he carved his canoe out of wood and painted it to look like stone. I would assume that that would have been pretty easy to test, but nobody seemed to check. Set's canoe sank immediately, as one might expect, because it's made out of fucking rock, but Horus casually rode across the finish line. Horus had clearly won this trial, by cheating, and the gods had earlier sent a letter to Osiris in the underworld. Osiris' response was very clear. Horus, my son, obviously deserves to be the ruler of Egypt, not my demon brother, who murdered me and cut off my penis. I'm not sure why they felt the need to confirm that Osiris felt that way, but it was decided. Set finally conceded and was banished to rule over the desert, bad things, and foreigners. Horus was the new king of Egypt, gods and humans alike celebrated his grandiose ascent to the throne, and Horus brought balance and wisdom to the kingdom. His mother Isis and some of the other gods became his advisors, and he ruled fairly with justice for all. Horus then married Hathor, the goddess of love and beauty. Good for him. You know how the protagonist of every comedy gets the girl who was formerly out of his league by the end of the movie? Yeah, that trope has been around for a while. To encourage young men to rise to the occasion. From the ancient Egyptians to Adam Sandler, they all know that nothing motivates a young man like a pretty girl who laughs at his bad jokes. So yeah, that's a setup for the Egyptian version of how the universe worked. Pretty wacky, but it kind of sets up Egypt's own version of the Holy Trinity. An idea that might have been later borrowed by Christianity? In this case, it's the mother, Isis, symbolic of the mind, the son, Horus, symbolic of the body, who rules over Earth, and the Holy Spirit, Osiris, symbolic of the soul, who rules over the afterlife. That might be a stretch, but the Holy Trinity in balance was a big deal for the Egyptians, and it's a pretty common theme for many religions in the ancient world and now. It's a pretty solid symbolic concept that the body, mind, and soul must be kept in healthy balance and harmony for one to be the best version of themselves that they can be. I think of that pretty often in my daily life. Anyway, the Egyptians were obviously obsessed with death, afterlife, and reincarnation, and they took great pains to act well in this life so that they would have a good time in the next one, then be reincarnated in a good situation to do it all over again. This is all part of why they'd get mummified with a big pile of stuff to take along with them into the afterlife, later to be reborn again into the mortal world. Hey, whatever makes you a good person, right? I'm not going to go on all day about ancient Egypt's strange ceremonial burial practices, though, but the themes weren't all that uncommon in ancient religious practices around the world. We've got to move on, though, because we've got some other wacky classical civilizations to cover. Next, the Greeks. These guys had some fun stories. It's probably one of the most entertaining of the ancient mythologies, in my opinion. According to the Greeks, in the beginning, there was formless chaos, though chaos was a female entity in this case. Nothing new there, the Babylonians and Sumerians considered Tiamat the watery feminine embodiment of chaos who created the universe. It's the same basic tropes over and over again, and I really get the feeling that these were all based in the same story at some point. Out of this formless void sprang into being Gaia, the Earth, Tartarus, the Underworld, and Eros, love, specifically of the erotic variety, as I understand. I appreciate that they considered love a primordial creative force in the universe, though. That's kind of sweet. Gaia and Chaos were able to have some kind of lesbian love affair that basically created the entire universe. Symbolically, that's not too different from a modern scientific understanding in a way. 
The chaos in matter, or Earth, created everything in the beginning, including life eventually. I've made this point a lot, but I sometimes wonder if these stories are mythologized interpretations of some lost ancient scientific perspective, to some degree or another. Obviously, a lot of this stuff is just really crazy stories, but some of them can almost seem to be people building stories around scientific ideas from long before their time that they no longer understand. Food for thought, back to the wacky story. We're about to watch a lot of abstract concepts be born as personified gods, so I'm just going to refer to most of them as the concepts that they represent and only mention the names of important characters. Chaos gave birth to male darkness and female night, who then slept together and created ether, the bright upper air, which has had a lot of meanings throughout time. It's the source of electricity in the universe in older or modern woo-woo scientific ideas, but ether in this story is described to be something more like the upper atmosphere? Make of that what you will, but it's where lightning comes from, in a manner of speaking. Alongside that vague concept was born the day. Next, the knight had a ton of abstract children, though not necessarily with her brother Darkness. These included the evil Fate, because Fate was never a good thing to the Greeks, along with Doom, Death, Revenge, Deceit, Strife, Old Age, and Blame. Some of her other children seem a bit less explicitly evil, like Sleep, Dreams, Sexual Pleasure, and Daughters of the Evening. Does that last one mean what I think it means? Nope. Daughters of the Evening does not mean prostitutes, I checked. It was three to seven women who ran a magical apple orchard on an island in the mysterious Atlantic Ocean. Well, it was distant and mysterious to the Greeks, anyway. The golden apples from this island make you immortal. That place is actually going to come up later. Anyway, those were all children of Chaos. Gaia also had a child from her affair with Chaos, Uranus, who is the stars in the sky. Uranus, or Uranus, married his mother, the Earth, and they had a bunch of children who were unfortunately all monsters. Incest, am I right? They produced three Cyclops. Cyclopses? Twelve Titans, and these really trippy, giant monsters with 100 hands and 50 heads. Where did they come up with this shit? That does kind of sound like a biblically accurate angel, to be fair. Anyway, Uranus was an abusive husband and father, who hated his children and locked them in the wombs of the Earth, otherwise known as caves, so that they couldn't see the light of day. Gaia wasn't happy about this, so she tried to convince her children to attack their cruel father. Only one was brave enough, though. The Titan Cronus, not to be confused with Kronos, the god of time. Apparently, even the ancient Greeks were pretty confused about this, though, as both Cronus and Kronos are portrayed to look identical with exactly the same mannerisms. Cronus, the Titan, ambushed his father, Uranus, as he prepared to sleep with the mother of both of them, Gaia. Cronus cut off Uranus's balls and threw them into the ocean. Oddly enough, after this, Uranus either died, left Earth, or just went to Italy. Okay. Considering that he is the stars, I'm gonna assume that he went to go be the stars. The blood from Uranus's castration created all sorts of wacky things when it hit the ground and or sea, including giants and some female monsters that would hunt you down for breaking a promise. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, emerged from the sea where Uranus's balls landed. Remember how the earth and the stars gave birth to everything in the Egyptian story? Yeah, it's the same picture. Cronus took charge after castrating his father and doubled down on his tyrannical actions. He imprisoned his more monstrous brothers and sisters even deeper underground, in the underworld this time, 
and made a dragon guard them. He then, naturally, married one of his sisters, who was also a titan, and had five children with her, but he ate them all when they were born. That's so ridiculously metal. To be fair, there was a prophecy that Cronus would be overthrown by one of his sons, so he did have a vested interest in making sure that they didn't grow up to be a problem. His wife didn't like this, obviously, so she had another child in secret on the island of Crete, and returned to her cannibalistic husband with a rock swaddled in a blanket, which he casually swallowed whole. The boy who lived, so to speak, was Zeus. He was raised in secret, but this time on an island, by fairies and a female goat. Sound familiar? This guy is starting to sound like he's going to have pretty much exactly the same story as Horus. Well, same old trope, slightly different story. He asked one of his future wives, Wisdom, for advice on how to dethrone his evil father, and she suggested that he essentially roofie Cronus's wine to make him continually throw up forever. Long story short, Zeus did just that, and Cronus threw up a rock, followed by Zeus's five siblings. The rock became important in a way, but that's for another time. I'm probably never even going to bring it up. It's the Oracle of Delphi. Eh, kinda. It's like the roof over it or something. I don't know how that works. All of Zeus's siblings were very thankful that they were no longer being digested, so they decided together that Zeus was their leader. Cronus was still alive, though weakened, and he convinced the other titans to unite against his children, who scared the shit out of all of them. For ten years, the titans fought the young gods, and the titans, led by Atlas, were nearly victorious at one point. Gaia suggested to Zeus that he should unleash the imprisoned monsters from the underworld, which he did, and the three Cyclops gave the gods their signature items. Zeus was given his thunderbolt, Poseidon was given his trident, and Hades was given a helmet that made him invisible. I guess that's Hades' thing? I'd never heard of that before. So Zeus and the gods laid a trap for the Titans, with their monster allies on top of either side of a mountain pass. Zeus pulled the classic fake retreat move, leading the Titans through this tight little mountain pass. The trippy, hundred-handed, fifty-headed monsters rained giant boulders down on the Titans, scattering them into retreat, so Zeus, his divine siblings, and their monster friends won the war for Earth. As is typical, the evil gods who lost couldn't just be killed, because, you know, they're gods, or Titans in this case, technically. So Zeus imprisoned them in the underworld. He respectfully allowed Atlas to remain unimprisoned, but he had to hold the entire universe on his shoulders. So, that's the story of the beginning of the universe, according to the Greeks. Obviously, that's not all of their stories, though. Zeus had a lot more cheating on his wives and sexually assaulting random human women to do. The Greeks have a lot of interesting stories with all of this, and I can't cover even a fraction of them. There's a whole period in here called the Greek Heroic Age, where long-dead Greeks did great deeds. There is one that I enjoy that's pretty famous, and I almost think that there might actually have been a real dude somewhere in this crazy legend. That is the story of Hercules, or Heracles. Someone that I read this to got all bent out of shape that I didn't just call him by his better-known Roman name, Hercules. So if I interchange the names, just know that they're the same fucking character. I'll just mention now that this story has a lot of testosterone, and that's the only way to tell it. In modern terminology, Zeus had that dog in him. In a typical move for Zeus, a mortal woman caught his eye. Her name was Alcmene, the granddaughter of Perseus, a great Greek hero. Zeus took the form of her husband, popping into her bedroom shortly after he had left, like the song Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel, and kicked off a presumably epic round two. Generally, Zeus's affairs with mortals were much more distasteful, but in this case, Alcmene had no reason to suspect that she wasn't just enjoying an evening with her unusually vigorous husband. 
Nine months later, Achmene gave birth to twins, one born of her mortal husband, the other born of Zeus. Hera, Zeus's goddess wife, was as usual angry about his constant infidelity, so she put two snakes in the crib with the twin babies. One cried, the other immediately strangled them both. It was clear to all involved which one was the demigod, the baby that was joyfully tying venomous snakes into knots. Without going through the names and details, Heracles was taught and tutored by the greatest men of Greece in everything from driving a chariot to shredding the lyre. By his teenage years, he could outfight an army, outthink Aristotle, and replace any member of Led Zeppelin. At 18, there was a giant, ferocious lion constantly preying on the flocks of his homeland. He hunted the lion for 50 days without rest, and for the rest of his days he wore its skin, with its head as his helmet. The local king had 50 daughters, and when Heracles returned from his epic hunt, the king sent a new daughter to him each night over the course of the year. Supposedly Heracles thought they were all the same girl, and slept with all of them. Seriously, in mythological stories, especially the Bible, men never seem to actually verify what woman they are actually sleeping with, leading to a lot of shenanigans. Regardless, all 50 daughters had one of Heracles' children. This might be part of why every Greek badass in the future claimed to be related to Heracles. To put it politely, he was very genetically successful. Herc was also kind of a nutcase. He encountered emissaries from an unimportant Greek city-state on their way to collect their annual tribute of 100 cows from Thebes. Heracles wasn't down with that, so he cut off the ears, noses, and hands of the emissaries, hung them around their necks, and told them to return to their king with that as tribute. The king was furious, so he raised his army to attack Thebes, but Heracles just killed him, terrified the army, and demanded that they pay double the tribute to Thebes. They did as they were told. It's raining cows in Thebes. The king of Thebes gratefully gave Herc his daughter in marriage, and he had somewhere between two and eight children with her. Hera, his jealous goddess stepmother, struck him with madness, and he killed his new wife and all of their children. When he came out of the spell, he was overcome by guilt. Yeah, that would suck. He asked the Oracle of Delphi how he could right this wrong, and they told him to go serve the king of Tyrns for 12 years. That might be pronounced Tyrnus, Tyrns, something like that. Whatever. It's Greek to me, you know. These would become the famous 12 labors of Heracles. For the record, the king didn't like Heracles for reasons that I won't get into, but the upshot is that he was trying to get Herc killed with each task. I won't go through all of these in too much detail, but just fill in badass heroism, saving children and beautiful maidens, etc. into each one of these labors. You know, he's always just being a badass. All of the classic heroic tropes literally came from Hercules. First, he was to kill another monstrous godlion, which had some kind of Kevlar fur that prevented weapons from piercing it. Heracles just snuck up on it and strangled it with his bare hands, skinned the lion with one of its own claws, and saved a little boy in the process. This armored lion pelt seems to have replaced the earlier one that he wore from his youth. Next, he was to kill a hydra, a mini-headed dragon dinosaur thing which grew back two heads every time one was cut off. This hydra lived in a poisonous lake, of course, so he had to cover his mouth and nose with a rag. Sounds about as effective for stopping poisonous gas as the same was for stopping the spread of COVID, but whatever, he's a demigod. Maybe the poisonous gas couldn't get him if he was sitting down at a table in a restaurant. Remember that? I digress. The two heads grow back thing was initially a problem, but Heracles' clever nephew had the idea of cauterizing the stumps to prevent the heads from regrowing, which the nephew did while Heracles lopped them off. Without going into too much detail, Heracles obviously won this encounter as well, because he's got plot armor, then dipped his arrows in the poisonous hydra blood, which was basically one of his special abilities in the future. 
This move does come back to bite him later, though. His third task was to capture the supernatural Doe of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. Doe? A deer? A female deer? This one's complicated, but long story short, Artemis convinced Heracles to let it go, which angered the king who told him to do it. As punishment, his fourth task was to capture a monstrous boar. There's a whole section in here where he gets hammered drunk with some centaurs, which results in a fight, but one of his centaur friends tells him to lure the boar into snow to capture it, which worked. It's worth noting that some think centaurs might have been a mythologized description of the nomadic horse archer people of the northern steppe. It's a little racist, because the centaurs are known for being pretty rapey and are total alcoholics, and that happens to be the same way the Greeks looked at the barbarian horse nomads from the north. For the record, these barbarian horse archer people are from kind of the area of Russia, but also like Mongolia. They're all over the steppe, you know, as it were. Uh, that's a very large area. It's like gigantic. It's an ocean of grass and lots of very mean, smelly people that drink a lot and are kind of rapey. They constantly come down into the civilized world and kill lots of people and rape them and burn everything. They're, they, they're, they kind of suck. Let's get real. But, you know, they, they, they are also kind of charming in a way. I have a certain respect for them in a way. They, they were real badasses. Anyway, those horse archers step people are going to show up a lot in history under many different names, and they were generally a mobile apocalypse. They were famously good archers and horsemen, which made the idea of them literally being horse people not too much of a stretch as far as tall tales go. Also, the Greeks are not the only people who depicted... who... well... Okay, a lot of people have stories of centaurs, and they're usually people who were right on the edge of all of the weird steppe people with the horses, right? And all of them considered centaurs to be rapey alcoholics, which is also how they later considered step people. To be fair, it, it does kind of seem like they were rapey alcoholics. I'll give them that. Anyway, when Heracles returned with the super boar, the king hid in a giant jar and made Heracles get rid of it somehow. He did. It isn't mentioned how. Maybe he turned it into super bacon. The Cowardly King is also going to hide in a jar a lot in this story, which might be some kind of safe room or something. But the Greek writers and I both think it's a lot funnier that he literally hides in a piece of pottery every time he feels threatened. Like a turtle, but it's really fragile. So stupid. His fifth task was to clean a stable in a day. Not as epic, but there is some mention of him rerouting two rivers to make this happen. I guess they were big stables, and he cleaned the shit out of them. Yeah, that was kind of a pun. Sorry. This is glorious, though. The gods like it when things are clean. Task 6. Time to kill some literally metal birds. Their beaks were made of bronze, their feathers were razor blades, with acid guano that could be thrown at their enemies. Badass. They lived in an evil swamp, obviously, which Heracles couldn't enter, so Athena, who's been periodically helping him out, gave him some rattle to scare them out of their nest so that he could shoot them down with his poisonous hydroblood arrows. He didn't kill them all, though. Some made it to an island and were later encountered by Jason and the Argonauts, who Heracles was actually supposed to join them, but he couldn't make it because he was busy doing something else. Task the seventh. Heracles had to capture a Super Bowl this time. This bull had impregnated some freaky girl, consensually, who had given birth to the Minotaur. These stories are so weird. Anyway, Herc wrangled it with his bare hands, presented it to the dickhead king, 
who again hid in the jar. Heracles released the bull, and it took up residence at Marathon, a place that will be rather important at some point in the next season. Task 8. Steal four man-eating, fire-breathing horses from a giant. Long story short, the horses ate one of his friends, which is how Heracles found out that they eat people. So when he killed the giant, he fed it to the horses, and the wild demon horses were calmed. There's different versions of the ending, but I'll go with the one where they were permanently calmed by eating the giant and allowed to peacefully roam the countryside. Because I like horses. Task 9. Steal the girdle from the queen of the Amazons, who was herself a demigod, daughter of the war god Ares. When Heracles showed up on her island, she just found him so charming that she was more than happy to just give it to him. Before she could, though, Hera, who was always trying to ruin Heracles' day, took the form of an Amazon warrior and told them that Herc was going to kidnap their queen. A battle ensued. Heracles unfortunately had to kill this wounding queen, but he escaped with the girdle. Oh, by the way, the whole thing with the Amazons is that it's like these giant badass warrior women. Not on the island of Lesbos, though. Actually, are they? They might be. Get it? Uh, that was really clever of them, right? Anyway. Labor 10. Kill a giant, take his cows. There's more to it, but you get the point. There were supposed to be only 10 labors, but the king decided that two of the labors didn't count. What an asshole. Task 11 was to steal some golden apples that make one immortal. Remember? The island with the golden apples in the Atlantic, guarded by three to seven daughters of the evening that are not in fact prostitutes? That was more dangerous than it sounds. And quite complicated, with like 10 side adventures along the way, but Heracles got it done. Task 12 was the crown jewel. Heracles had to capture Cerberus, the three-headed demon dog that guarded the gates of hell for his master, Hades. Some say it had 50 or 100 heads, however that works. Oh, and it had a venomous snake for a tail, naturally. Also, the dog is, like, gigantic, of course. Like, wouldn't be much of a threat if it was, like, the size of a pit bull. It's huge. This task was, of course, totally metal. Heracles asked Hades if he was allowed to capture the demonic canine, who seemed to find the whole idea very amusing. He allowed it, as long as Herc didn't use a weapon. Heracles was bitten by the snake tail, and while he tripped balls in the venom, he wrestled Cerberus to the ground, somehow choking out all three heads until the creature passed out. On his way out, he rescued Theseus from the underworld, who was another Greek badass who I haven't had time to introduce. One of those Greek heroic age guys? Yeah, there's a reason they call it that. Heracles returned to the king with Cerberus bound in magical chains, and the king did his signature move of hiding in a jar. Presumably, Heracles returned the dog to his master, Hades, and his labors were complete. This story is already long in the tooth, so I won't go through any more of the heroic badassery that Heracles got up to to rid the world of evil, but the man kicked a whole lot of ass. He got a whole lot of ass, too. Finally, I'll finish his story with his heroic demise. He married again, and soon after, him and his wife had to cross a river one by one with a ferryman, who happened to be a centaur. That might mean that he's just a Scythian. Hey, I'll tell you about them later. His wife went first, and once on the other side, the centaur attempted to rape his wife. Typical centaur behavior. Heracles shot the centaur immediately with his poison arrows, which stopped him, but the centaur cleverly got his revenge. The centaur told Heracles' wife that she should take his shirt, and have Heracles wear it if she ever believed he would be unfaithful to her, because it would magically keep him loyal to her. Since that was pretty much positive to happen eventually, the plan worked, and the centaur's blood that soaked the shirt was full of poison from the hydra. 
Eventually, Heracles fell in love with another woman. Shocking, I know. And his wife gave him the shirt to wear to keep that dog in him by her side. The shirt burned Heracles, dissolving his flesh and sending him into total agony. He built a funeral pyre and begged passerbys to light it for him and free him from his pain. Nobody really wanted to be the guy who killed the great hero, though, but eventually an old friend came by and was convinced to do so. Heracles burned, but was saved by a beautiful goddess in a flying chariot. Aliens. Anyway, he was brought up to Mount Olympus with the gods, made immortal, and took his rightful place among the gods at his father's side. The original story doesn't go into detail about the ending of Heracles' story and how this all went down. These stories never really do. I'm going to fill in the detail, because this is how I feel the story ends. I'm only embellishing it a bit, though. This is still the actual story, though part of it might be a later edition by moralizing Christians later on. You'll know when that comes. Anyway, Heracles joined the gods at Olympus. This was heaven. No monsters, no pain, no evil. And it bored the living shit out of him. Heracles didn't really belong here. He was supposed to be covered in blood and women, the life of a god among men. So he sat among the gods, growing ever more bored of hearing the same stories of their glory days fighting the titans, and growing ever more tired of telling his own. There was something that made his heart beat like a mortal again, though. Hebe, the goddess of youth, who delivered the gods their wine and chicken wings, smiled sweetly at him whenever she poured his glass, and laughed at the things he said that weren't that funny. She was the most beautiful of the gods, at least to him. Hercules hazily remembered that Hebe had rescued him from the fire. Later, she had gone out of her way to help his nephew and dear friend to feed his nemesis, the king who always hid in a jar. The king had tried to kill all of Heracles' children, but his nephew saved them all. Later, Herc's nephew humiliated the cowardly king in a chariot race when Hebe made him young again for a day. Hercules had fought monsters and wrestled with gods, and had spent the night with half of the women in Greece, but Hebe still made him feel mortal, softer than a rabbit and braver than a lion. On one dull day in heaven... Hebe tripped over her dress as she carried wine to Apollo, spilling it everywhere and exposing her magnificent goddess boobs to all the gods. Apollo raved, firing her from her position as the waitress of the gods. Hercules couldn't care less about the rantings of the old man, though. He rushed over to help her and restore her dignity. When she smiled at him, he knew why his life had brought him here. Hercules married Hebe shortly after, and his evil stepmother Hera became his mother-in-law. For the first time, she actually smiled at him. Hebe and Hercules had two children together. She was gracefully clumsy, he was foolishly wise, and they were more than happy to share eternity together. And so ended the story of Hercules. Yeah, I know I might have made that a little sappy, but after spending some time with the archetypical hero, I wanted to flesh out his happy ending a little bit. I think he deserves it, though his wasn't the story of a perfect man. It was the story of a great man. There's that old saying, right, that a great man and a good man are rarely the same person. So, though the story of Hercules might not be true in a literal sense, since it's full of gods and mythological creatures that probably didn't exist, I do kind of wonder about the guy it was based on. Easy answer one, aliens. Aside from that, I'm open to the idea that it was a superhero story. Basically Greek Superman, and we wrongly assume that people at the time actually believed it. Still, it could be the story of a guy who was really awesome, but it got embellished to a ridiculous degree as time went on. We have other examples like this more recently. Davy Crockett was a ridiculously cool guy in a totally grounded world, a hero to Indians and pioneers alike on the early frontier of the United States, complete with an epic end where he fought to the death like a Spartan at the Alamo. 
The stories about Crockett at the time were larger than life, though. He would kill bears with his bare hands, eat them raw, and then jump over a river. Not like a small river, but a big river. Even he put out a charming book later in his life to explain that he was just a man who happened to be involved in a lot of big things and generally kind of did the right thing. He also didn't actually like bear meat that much, and he wanted people to stop offering it to him. Maybe the story of Heracles is kind of the same thing. A really impressive guy whose story became larger than life. Don't get me wrong, Herc also clearly did a lot of messed up shit and seemed like kind of a psycho. But his story lived through a total collapse of civilization that we'll be getting to later. And times like that can often turn a man into a myth. Though I'd like to go through some more Greek legends, because they're a riot. This episode is already too long, and there's one last group I wanted to explain before the next episode. Briefly, I'd like to introduce the Canaanites, who will be continually relevant in the upcoming season. The Canaanites will later be known as Phoenicians, a name which references the absurdly expensive purple dye that they were famous for selling. They lived in the area of modern Lebanon, and that whole rough area between Turkey, Iraq, and Egypt seems to have been kinda Canaanite territory before the Jews showed up and kicked their asses out of what became Israel. Yes, that area is a shit show now, and it has been for all of recorded history. Also, kinda still the same fight, too. It's fucked up. They always would have thought of themselves as Canaanites, but when they later became known as Phoenicians to the other cultures of the Mediterranean, it was for their excellent shipbuilding and enthusiasm for trade. Even the name Britain might have come from the Phoenicians, who were so good at sailing that they might have made it all the way up there. That was like going to Mars in the Bronze Age. The idea that they might have been trading with the ancient British Celts back then is absolutely crazy. The early roots of the name Britain might mean land of tin in ancient Canaanite. However, I'm not sure how solid that connection is. Tin was an extremely valuable strategic resource in the Bronze Age, because combined with copper, it makes bronze. Yeah, this alloy was so important at the time that we named the entire time period after it. But I digress. These Canaanites had a somewhat mixed reputation. While the Egyptians seemed to like them well enough, the Israelites clearly disliked them. The Greeks appeared to have found them distasteful, and the Romans made a point to wipe out their main city around a thousand years later. I'm gonna try to give the Canaanites a fair shake, as they were very impressive, but I can kind of see why people had some issues with them, if the stories are true. First, the Canaanites were well known for being merchants, and a lot of the people of the time seemed to think they were greedy fuckheads. They were in the perfect place to be the middlemen of every valuable transaction, with luxury goods coming in from distant lands like Afghanistan, and then being sold by the Canaanite merchant marines. They also happened to control the supply of purple dye, which was extremely expensive and a super big deal at the time. They always seemed to end up on the right side of every deal. That's not the real issue with the Canaanites, though. Being rich is, you know, annoying, but this next part, probably worse. Their religious practices were supposedly extremely fucked up. The problem with that assessment is that we don't have much evidence of their practices from them or archaeology, and most references to their practices were from people that obviously hated them, and those people often conquered them and always tried to erase their culture. They did a pretty good job most of the time, too. What we do know is this. They have the classic father of the gods, El, his son, Baal, the king of the gods, who was naturally married to his sister, Asherah. Baal was often symbolized as a bull, or with a bull head, and was a storm god, considered identical to Set from Egypt, and worshipping him supposedly brought rain, and notably, wealth. 
In another pretty typical trope, their gods lived on top of a supernatural mountain. Whose gods don't live on top of a supernatural mountain? Come on. There was definitely a lot of ritual sacrifice involved in worshipping them. More sacrifices than average for the time, it seems. Particularly of children. It's possible that their religious practices were somewhat secretive as well. If any of the rumors are true, I could see why they'd prefer to keep it on the down low. So, here's the rumors. Ritual orgies with unwilling participants was a big one. Ritual sexual abuse of young children was another, and lots of child sacrifice, often after the sexual abuse. The more out-there allegations involved blood drinking of said ritually abused and sacrificed children, and last but not least, there's some good old-fashioned demon summoning. So yeah, it's basically the roots of what we now think of as hardcore Satanism. The Canaanite gods are thought to be the inspiration for the character of Satan, and other various demons in the biblical tradition, and if any of that stuff is true, I could see how. Even today, many believe cults of Canaanite religion exist, generally among the sketchy, super-wealthy elites, and it's basically hardcore Satanism. Not the dorky, like, atheism with extra steps that is Levain Satanism, which is some fairly reasonable rules for living and a lot of nerdy goth types wearing robes and drawing pentagrams with candles around them. No, 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 no. This is, this is the hardcore stuff, with ritualistic sexual abuse and child sacrifice. I can't say for sure if certain modern elites are into this stuff, but when you know what to look for, this stuff shows up more often than you might think. Statues and an ark of Baal got put up in New York City, bull symbolism is everywhere, like Wall Street, and there's a building with all of the hallmarks of a temple to Baal on Jeffrey Epstein's island. But this is all getting real tinfoil hat, and it's not really relevant anyway. Point is, the Canaanites are rumored to have been into some really dark stuff, and we can't know for sure if that was actually true. We do know that many civilizations, if not most, that came in contact with them considered them to be pure evil, and those cultures almost always went out of their way to erase Canaanite culture from memory. So, uh, yeah, that got a little heavy. Anyway, here's some honorable mention of cultures that didn't make it into this episode, but are important in this period. There's the Hittites, who lived in the middle of modern Turkey, and the Babylonians, living in mid-Iraq and to the east. The Sumerians were pretty much just a memory by the time that we know anything about, but they were in southern Iraq if they were anywhere. Most of the religious pantheons of these cultures look pretty similar to me. You see the same tropes over and over again, and some of them even echo in the early biblical stories. I tend to think that they were all kind of the same story at some point, which got altered over the course of time by different civilizations, whether they meant to or not. Even though I didn't mention it, there's always a great flood story, there's always a war between the gods, and the family of the gods is generally pretty similar. And yeah, I didn't get to the Babylonians, but like, really, realistically, it's pretty much the same story that I also kind of mentioned back in the Ancient Aliens one, but it's the same basic story that I just told you from Egypt or Greece. It's just a little bit more, you know, well, alien-flavored. Who knows? I don't know. They are weird. There's a lot of crazy monsters in most of these stories, and those tend to be pretty similar, too, a lot of the time. You know, everybody's always going on about these fucking centaurs. They're probably just people who are really good at riding horses and shooting bows, but it's kind of weird. If you're looking for a way that these stories are true in some way, and you don't mind sounding like a fucking nutcase, the easy answer is always aliens. All this weird shit that doesn't make sense is just aliens, or side effects of aliens. Half-god children? Aliens. 
Throwing lightning and magical items? Alien tech. Crazy monsters? Alien genetic experiments. Duh. As my fourth episode made clear, I'm not shy about that idea. But I have no firm belief that it must be the truth either. There's also a possibility that a coworker once brought up to me when we were a little drunk after a company outing long ago. Maybe this was just superhero stories for these people. It's totally possible that a lot of this stuff was just casual fiction a really long time ago, and people actually started to take it seriously at some point. Or not. It could have just been fun stories all along, and we totally misinterpret the actions and beliefs of these ancient people. I tend to think that people aren't that stupid. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, people are that stupid, but these stories are so absurd that they either had to be based in something, were total fiction, or people were willing to believe in something because it was better than believing in nothing. I couldn't tell you, but I hope you enjoyed the weird stories at least. The moral of these stories? Man, I don't know. This stuff is completely ridiculous. I have no idea what to make of it. But let's assume for just a moment that people literally believe this stuff, and it wasn't just their version of superhero movies. The lesson there might be, whatever you believe now, might and probably will look completely ridiculous to people in 4,000 years. Yep, in 6,000 AD, if they're still measuring their calendar by what year a really nice guy was born, they're probably going to look at all of our deeply held beliefs of today as absolutely completely insane. If they can't even tell what we meant by any of that at all. Then again, those people in the future might find some nerd's collection of Iron Man and Star Wars action figures and think it was a shrine to a polytheistic religion that was competing with Christianity, Islam, and the rising religion of worshipping the almighty AI that runs our simulation. Maybe one day they'll look back at us and think that we worship Taylor Swift and Elon Musk. God, that's depressing, right? I am convinced that the world is that goofy. On the next episode, we're going to dive into some stories that are a little bit more relevant in the modern day, because they are the foundation of three of the largest and most notable religions on Earth right now. This next story, which I will try to respectfully have some fun with, is the story of Genesis. Genesis.